1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pause of the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kai, and DR, as usual, talking about the news that you don't know from the past week with regard to race and justice. And then I sit down with Reverend Al Sharpton to discuss what's going on with voting rights. My advice for this week is to trust your gut. You might not always have the language, you might not know exactly how to describe the thing, but you often know what you feel like. And for me, I always know what I feel like. I'm like, ugh, this is a little weird and speak up when things are like feeling weird like you don't have to always be intense about it but you can just say hey this thing happened and there have been a couple of moments in the past week where like something fell off and I named it and I'm happy that I named it like it didn't make it necessarily weird but it was like you know what I could fester in this or I could like overthink it but I also could just name it and name it really just you know either we're gonna be friends or gonna be something or not and that is actually like a really powerful thing name it Name it, name it, name it. My news this week comes out of Philadelphia, and it is about Philadelphia D.A. Larry Krasner, who announced a week ago that he is charging three former homicide detectives, Mango Santiago, Martin Devlin, and Frank Jesterzymski, with perjury and false swearing in official matters because they lied about a set of facts that played a role in the 1993 conviction of Anthony Wright. Now, Mr. Wright has since been exonerated by DNA evidence, but there's a Conviction Integrity Unit that DA Krasner started in 2018 that is looking at some of these cases. And it's so powerful because, you know, the police lie all the time on the stand and they never, ever, ever. There's no consequence, right? Maybe the person doesn't get charged, but there's normally no consequence And Krasner had a quote that said, after hearing testimony from key witnesses and reviewing evidence, the grand jury recommended that Santiago, Devlin, and Drzezinski be held accountable for lying under oath to condemn an innocent man and cover up their wrongdoing and for perverting the integrity of the law. And it's like, you know what? Y'all should be held accountable for these things because you ruined this man's life. I mean, he has been in jail for 25 years for a rape and a murder that he did not commit. He was wrongfully convicted in 1993 of a 1991 rape and murder of 77-year-old Luis Talley. Uh, At the time, Santiago and Devlin, they were Philadelphia homicide detectives. They coerced him into signing a false confession less than 24 hours after her body was found. And the confession was, quote, "...fabricated by the detectives based on their incomplete knowledge of the crime scene and the crime itself." The confession included a set of claims that were later disproved by DNA evidence, uh, including the idea that Mr. Wright raped and stabbed Tally repeatedly. The detectives used a host of illegal coercive tactics. They threatened to pull his eyes out, to skull, F him. They promised him that he could go home if he signed the confession, and they instructed him to sign it without even reading it, which is wild. He was 20. This man was 20 years old. When they coerced his confession out of him, he said he was innocent. He spent time crying uh, for his mother, who was there, but they won't let her in. He wanted to go home. He signed it, and that, that was the beginning of 25 years in jail. He was held without bail during the whole process, and the jury convicted him in 1993 based on the false confession and the clothing that one of the three officers said that they had found. The scary thing is if two more jurors had agreed, they would have sentenced this man to death instead of life in prison. And then in 2014, the Innocence Project actually got involved in his case. And Wright's conviction was overturned based on DNA evidence that proved that the confession was false and the clothing wasn't his. And the DNA that was extracted from samples in Tally's rape kit matched a man, another man named Robert Byrd, who was no longer living by the time the DNA sample was tested again. And what's really wild is that once it was overturned, despite the clear evidence, the Philadelphia DA's office, they decided to try him for the crime again. Now, this was before Krasner. And during his second trial, Santiago, Devlin, and Jasrinski, they, quote, testify falsely under oath about both the evidence used to convict right and their knowledge of the DNA evidence that ultimately exonerated him. And, you know, it's just one of those things that, like, Again, not only was he exonerated by DNA, but the police came back and lied again. I mean, what? So... I bring this here because these cases happen more often than anybody would ever believe. I'm dealing with one in Baltimore now, but the police lie. There's no accountability for them. Very few offices have an integrity unit. And there's a real pressure that prosecutors have to like close the case, to like find the bad person who did the bad thing. And the police, they cannot do it without the police. So, you know, the good thing is that the second trial, the jury acquitted Mr. Wright of all the charges after less than an hour of deliberations. Wright was freed after spending 25 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. He can't get those 25 years back. And the system just goes on to the next person. I mean, it's sort of wild, but I brought it here because I want to share with you. And there's so much more. The forensic space is really untapped and organizing. There's so much more that needs to be done there because, y'all, this DNA evidence, what the police are saying they found, all this stuff is has ruined countless lives.
2: Hey, it's Sam, and my news today is about Georgia, where according to data from the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, there are currently 7.2 million registered voters in the state of Georgia. And what that means in terms of the overall population, when we look at the citizen voting age population estimates, that suggests as many as 95% of the citizen voting age population, so folks who are U.S. citizens over the age of 18, are currently registered to vote, which is a huge accomplishment despite historic challenges from Republicans, from voter suppression schemes, from Governor Kemp, the current governor of Georgia who literally administered the election which he won and purged hundreds of thousands of voters from those registration rolls, and still, You had organizers, you had researchers, you had policymakers, state politicians, you had political leaders, you had Stacey Abrams, of course, who made a huge difference in increasing voter registration rates. And also you see the impact of policies like automatic voter registration, which was responsible for the majority of the increase in new registrations. Now also making voter registration available online contributed as well um, to increasing those rates. So you can see policies making it easier to vote combined with organizing efforts on the ground making sure that every door is knocked, every individual is contacted to get folks registered and more importantly coming up in the next election making sure that those registrations are translated into turnout, that folks are motivated, that they're inspired, that they get to the polls, that they aren't being blocked by voter suppression schemes and intimidation and misinformation, and that's the battle ahead. Moreover, what the report showed was that there were still 387,000 folks who are unregistered, uh, who are in the citizen voting age population. And according to previous data from 2019's most recent data available, as many as 265,000 of those folks are not registered to vote because they are being disenfranchised um, because they are either currently incarcerated or are currently serving uh, parole or felony probation. And in Georgia, um, that means you can't, you're not able to register or vote. Um, so again, there's work to be done at the policy level, the state level, and also the federal level, passing legislation to make sure um, that everybody has the ability to register and vote in the next election. So if you're in Georgia... There's a lot of work to do to translate that new registration into turnout, to organize, um, get connected to folks near you, get informed, get
1: active, take action. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming.
0: Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like calorie smart Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not...
1: atlp.com slash people.
0: My news this week comes from The Guardian, which did an analysis of textbooks used in private schools, especially Christian schools, and found that their telling of history is inaccurate and racially biased. Thousands of private schools across the country, and also lots of homeschooling families, teach history through a racially biased lens. This is a time right now in our country where we are experiencing cultural wars, where state legislatures are banning what is called critical race theory and what they say are divisive concepts like racism and sexism being taught in public schools. But private schools teach curricula with virtually no oversight and no restrictions. And they seem to be teaching their own version of critical race theory. In fact, according to Dr. Dorinda Carter, who is the chair of the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University, She says these textbooks spread racist ideas. They purport that one group is superior over others, and they assert that one group is more human than others, which is quite troubling. The study looked at textbooks from the three largest Christian textbook companies, Abeka, Bob Jones University Press, and Accelerated Christian Education, and found that they contain some pretty disturbing interpretations of our history. And when I say disturbing, I'm being quite kind. In these textbooks, they refer to immigrants as aliens, Um, they describe slavery as black immigration. Immigration. They call Malcolm X the most prominent black supremacist. Uh, They say that Nelson Mandela moved South Africa to a system of radical affirmative action. What? They frame Native Americans as lesser than white people. They identify more with the citizens fighting to preserve slavery than the victims of what we all know to be an incredibly inhumane system. Um, In talking about the economics of slavery, they say that slaves are a better investment than indentured servants. They say that Black Lives Matter is responsible for strife between law enforcement and communities, not police mistreating and killing people. Um, They paint Islam as a violent religion They describe societal acceptance of homosexuality as cultural decay, and they say to Barack Obama harmed race relations in our country. This is in textbooks, friends. This is what people are teaching their children. And so when we try to figure out how we've gotten to such a polarized place in America, it's not just that we don't live near each other or we don't interact with people who are different than we are. There is actually a systematized and institutional Um, intentionality around teaching people a different version of history. And that is why this debate is raging over critical race theory, because at the end of the day, there's a set of people who, that's why it's called history, right, his story, and whoever is writing gets to tell it. And so these three textbook publishers have been telling his story the way they want to tell it preserving white supremacy, preserving some of these cultural myths, frankly, and inaccuracies. And when the world is looking up and saying, hey, we have to correct this, um, there's a group of folks who are preserving the status quo. In fact, these textbooks reach millions of kids And a 2017 investigation by the Huffington Post found that a third of all private voucher schools throughout the country, and private voucher schools are actually private schools that get public money to teach kids, they use these textbooks. So our government dollars are also being spent on these schools that teach this curriculum. I want to just read one passage uh, from the Accelerated Christian Education book, which, instead of focusing on the horrors of slavery, sympathizes with the white Southern landowners who had to learn a new way of life after the war. This is their interpretation of the Reconstruction era. It reads, under radical Reconstruction, the South suffered. Great Southern leaders and much of the old aristocracy were unable to vote or hold office. The result was that state legislatures were filled with illiterate or incompetent men. Do you hear that? Northerners who were eager to make money or gain power during the crisis rushed to the South. For all these reasons, reconstruction led to graft and corruption and reckless spending. In retaliation, many Southerners formed secret organizations to protect themselves and their society from anarchy. Among these groups was the Ku Klux Klan, a clandestine group of white men who went forth at night dressed in white sheets and pointed white hoods. Can you give me a break? I mean, literally, this is what students are learning in their classes. And so you wonder why we are at this incredibly fraught time in race relations. I would argue, in fact, it is because um, there are right-wing U.S. textbooks that teach slavery as black immigration, which is the title of this article. Check it out for yourself in The Guardian. We got a long way to go, friends.
4: Y'all, my news this week is from The New York Times. The headline is Josephine Baker to be honored with the Pantheon burial. I don't know about you all, but I have been obsessed with Josephine Baker since I learned of her. And I mean, I had to learn of her when I was very, very little, because I think I dressed up as Josephine Baker for several Halloweens, but have always, you know, she's such an interesting personality and character and hero, because I think across all my different iterations of who I've been, she means something different and more to me. Um, And so I think now at this point in my life, like understanding the, you know, the success and stardom that she had and understanding that she couldn't have that in the United States and, you know, had that in Paris is just really an interesting thing to think about as someone who's striving to do something that not necessarily has been done in terms of impact work. And so it's just, you know, really using her as a guide continually to do what has not been done before. Um, Obviously, that in you know, where she got and, you know, how she was treated, how she was characterized, had a lot to do with racism, had a lot to do with, you know, the commodification of of a black woman's body. Um, But nonetheless... I think Josephine Baker is pretty near and dear to everyone's heart. So it's just interesting now, politically and socially, France do this now. It's obviously, you know, uh, even the New York Times article characterizes it as a symbolic move amid racial tensions. But she will be the first black woman to be entombed in the pantheon in Paris. And evidently, there aren't many women at all that are entombed there. And so there's been a movement over decades and decades to get more women in there. But this movement to get Josephine Baker in there actually started with a petition that was pushed forward by a writer named Laurent Kupferman. Um, This caught the attention of the president of France, uh, Mr. Macron, and the petition evidently had garnered 40,000 signatures over the past two years. Um, But it'll be interesting to see, you know, it's You know, there's conversation around, will this be worse for race relations in France? Will it be better for it? Obviously, what this really reminds me of is everything that we've been seeing in the United States when it comes to, you know, bringing down all of these memorials that somehow memorialize, you know, Confederate generals or white supremacists, former KKK leaders, yada, yada, yada. So it's interesting to see, you know, these more symbolic moves um, to do things like this as opposed to the work, that is needed to do the more systemic and institutional changes. Um, and that's actually some of the feedback that people of color on the ground in Paris in particular are saying. Um, but I just thought this one was interesting. So for y'all to take a look, you know, black folks have a really deep, compelling and interesting relationship when it comes to Paris, particularly our creative. So thinking of folks like, You know Richard Wright, James Baldwin, and a number of others who escaped to Paris and spent a lot of time there and were able to be creative and expressive in ways they weren't able to be in the United States. You know, something interesting to think about and and brood over um, and just thinking about, you know, what's different about now, but what's similar about now for folks of color, both American and also people of color who are French born or who have immigrated to France. So I thought this was interesting. I love any headline um, that brings Josephine Baker back to our present. Um, So, just thought I'd share it with y'all.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Explore the world's hidden wonders
3: on the Atlas Obscura podcast. A village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are
5: tap the banner to go to monday.com hi it's martha stewart you know i spend a lot of time thinking about dirt This
1: week, Reverend Al Sharpton sits down with me to discuss the upcoming March on Our Voting Rights on August 28th. This date will mark the 50th anniversary of the historic March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech, and events are going to be held in D.C., Atlanta, Miami, Phoenix, and Houston. Here's our conversation about the future of voting rights. Here we go. I know we're here to talk about voting, and I'm excited because I feel like this is a conversation that, We've seen on the news, but, you know, I'm telling you, when I talk to my aunts, when I talk to my father, the voting rights conversation is something that they see on TV, but they don't really see an entering point for what they can do about it. So I'd love to know, like, how do you talk to people about this, given that, like, voting rights feels like a big deal to people, but it feels abstract
6: in terms of, like, what
1: they actually can do, you
6: know? I think that I get that a lot of places, that people uh, understand the gravity of it, but where do they plug in? And first and foremost, I tell people that this is more immediate than they think. The actual food that we eat is approved by the FDA. Well, the FDA is appointed by who's in office, the clothes we wear. Everything is regulated by somebody, either at a county level, state level, or national level. So we cannot act as if voting is not important. What we have to do is figure out how we do it. And what I do is I say, first of all, we all have different roles we play. Everybody doesn't have to play the same role, shouldn't play the same role. Some should be dealing uh, with social media to their appointing to their elected officials that we need to kill this filibuster. The only way that I see the John Lewis bill uh, pass is that it has to pass the House, which it probably will next week. And then pass the Senate, which I don't see 10 Republican votes, which means they at best are going to have to kill the filibuster, which I think is a relic of of the uh, segregationist era and all all the way back to the uh, uh, Confederates. Or they're going to have to do a carve out, which is what uh, Clyburn recommended, uh, which they agreed to vote around this on a majority vote. Uh, but the question is, would Manchin and them go with that even if you got a majority vote? So what we're doing in the National Action Network and the uh, Drummage Institute with Martin III is we're doing you know our big annual rally around Dr. King's uh, I Have a Dream Day to march right at the Senate. We're not going to Lincoln Memorial this year. We're going to start at the McPherson Park. Uh, McPherson uh, is on 15th and H and march right down past uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza, past the uh, uh, White House, into the National Mall, and have it right there with the uh, Capitol as the backdrop. We're trying to focus people's attention, and we're doing other gatherings in about uh, five other cities. That's mass mobilization. But we're going to ask people to do everything from use social media on their elected officials, sign in so we can know what a mass, social uh, media data, so we can tell you who is your local official, your congressperson, your senator, and have them target emails into them. They be to be gathered. They need to pressure. Mansion in West Virginia, Sinema, uh, we need to pressure these votes because movements are from the bottom up, not the top down. And, you know, all of us asking, rightfully so, what is Biden going to do, what is Harris going to do? When well, Lyndon Johnson didn't lead the voting rights movement, he signed the bill. It was the Jimmy Lee Jackson who got killed and in Marion, Alabama, and it was Snick in Mississippi, and uh, Ella Baker, and then John Lewis, and Dr. King came in after John Lewis and Jose got beat. That's where the movement came. We've got to have that kind of ground game, multifaceted, uh, that puts the pressure on the Senate. Otherwise, we're going to see what we saw in history, states' rights, where every state is going to come with their own restrictive state voting laws. And when we look up, we're going to see people eliminated from the polls, drop boxes, gone. And as Georgia just started yesterday, where they will actually purge county election officials so they can nullify the votes. They'll vote and tell, no, 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 that precinct was corrupt, take these votes out. We're literally seeing the dismantling of a democracy even though it never fully became a democracy.
1: What, you talked about the filibuster, and I've seen people talk about it a lot. But I, again, when I call, if I call my dad and I'm like, hey, daddy, what is the filibuster? What should we do? How would you explain the filibuster to people?
6: Filibuster means that in a Senate, the U.S. Senate has uh, 100 seats. In order to pass a law, you need 60 votes. Otherwise, you can't pass. And it used to be that if somebody came to the floor, they had to hold the floor to stop it uh, from proceeding if they had to talk two days. Now it doesn't matter. You don't have to stand there and talk. If you don't have 60 votes, it doesn't go anywhere. So it's not a majority vote. It's not 51 votes other than if it's fiscal. Like the budget, you can get by with 51 votes. And uh, anything related to budgetary items. This is not a law. This is a Senate tradition, which is why the Senate can go around it, because it's just Senate, this is what we agree to deal with. And, and the filibuster was used in history to always stop civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation, women, gender issues, LGBTQ issues. They always would use it, but back in those days, they had to talk all night. They had to stall it. Now all they have to do is say, if you don't have sixty votes, it's a non-starter. That's today's twenty-first century version of a filibuster. Now, is, do you think it's possible we can
1: get rid of the filibuster? Is that what should people be calling their legislators, or is there a city or a state where the legislators are really against getting rid of the filibuster?
6: Yeah, they should be putting the pressure on those senators to say that we did not elect you to have to get sixty votes. We elected you if you get a majority. Why did people go out in unprecedented numbers, D-Ray, in 2020, in a pandemic, and vote more than they ever voted in American history, the highest presidential numbers in American history, and then Georgia came back the second time with the highest numbers, and in the Deep South elected a Jew and a black to the U.S. Senate? They did not do that for you to tell us about some procedural agreement you guys got. We did that because we wanted to see things done on policing, on health care, on uh, protecting women's rights, on protecting LGBTQ rights and queer rights, all of that. So that you're going to come back and tell me after we broke the meeting and got you in that you've got to deal with some tradition in the Senate? That's why we put you there, to break tradition. And that's the message they've got to do. They ought to be hitting their senators and other senators. When we met Martin Luther King III and I and uh, uh, his wife, Andrea, but Manchin, Manchin couldn't explain it and justify it. Manchin was saying that I disrespect bipartisanship. But it wasn't bipartisanship that gave y'all the time majority in the Senate. It was our turnout. Otherwise, y'all would have been a minority party and Mitch McConnell would have remained majority leader. And that message has got to come in mass from people all over the country. Got it, got it, got it.
1: And uh, what do you say to people? Some people have said, you know, if we get rid of the filibuster this time then when the Republicans get in power, they're going to take away all of our rights, that the filibuster's actually protected us. That's what I feel like the people who are against getting rid of the filibuster, they keep saying. What do you say to that?
6: I say, how is the filibuster protecting us if our votes are being stripped and we won't be able to vote in many of these states because the Voting Rights Act has been neutered when they took out Section 4, which took away the map, which was preclearance. And a lot of people don't understand that. I I was in the all arguments at the Supreme Court that day. What they did was they did not stop the Voting Rights Act. What they did was say, you can keep the Voting Rights Act, but the map is outdated because this is a 1965 map, and now we're in 2013. This is Shelby versus uh, Polder case. And we want a new map. Just tell Congress, give us a new map. Well, Congress never gave the map until now in the John Lewis bill. And the map said that if you were in the states they named in the Voting Rights Act, Georgia was one, Mississippi, Florida, it was about seven states, and uh, some counties even in New York, that had a pattern of voter abuse, you could not change the rules unless it was pre-cleared by the Justice Department, which means that what Georgia did the day before yesterday, uh, about changing who would be the county boards, they could not have done that without clearing it with Garland and the Justice Department. When they decide to close uh, early voting sites, or when they decide to stop uh, drop boxes, couldn't do it without the Justice Department clearing. That is what's in the John Lewis Voting Bill is to put the map back in. The other thing they've done now with the last Supreme Court decision about four weeks ago is Section Two. Where they're saying, well not only do you have to prove that there is, uh, unequal or, or disproportional impact to people based on race or gender or sexual orientation, you have to prove that was the intent. So, I don't have to prove I'm discriminating against women. You have to prove I intend to dis- discriminate against women even if the data shows that. wow, And that's why we need this bill.
1: That is a call to action for people. And, you know, what, what do you think about the George Floyd Act? Do you think that that is going to pass? Do you think that we'll just see the administration do executive orders?
6: I think executive order is something that is a band-aid, but it's not the surgery we need. Because as soon as the next president comes in, executive order goes out. We need law. And qualified immunity must be part
1: of the law. Do you think it's going to—it looks like Tim Scott, though, is holding it up. And I only ask because there are a lot of people who we've struggled to get to do something because they're like, well, you know, the administration doesn't care about the police. It doesn't look like Congress is doing anything about the police. And that has hurt us on some of the other issues. So, you know, do you think Congress will do it? And if not, what is what can we do to get people to still be motivated to take action?
6: I think we've got to pressure them. The leverage we have is—22 uh, is the midterm election. And when I met with Biden— and some of the civil rights groups, I said that you will not win the midterms because we will not be out there. We'll be out there saying you promised George Floyd. You supported it. You didn't deliver George Floyd, and you didn't deliver against the filibuster on voting rights, and you'll lose the Congress, and all your championships will be gone. You'll be a named-up president because you won't be able to pass anything. So if you can't do it because it's right, you should do it for your own expedience, and that's what people have to stand up and tell them. You obviously don't have a moral drive, so you've got to have at least your own self-preservation because you won't be here. Right. There we go. Is there a website that
1: people—how do people stay in touch? If people want to be involved with the marches, if people want to do something on voting rights, where should they go for more information?
6: They should go to www.nationalactionnetwork.net, and we post every day, and uh, we want people to be involved and the follow-up to the marches. We're going to stay on this until we can get this bill done one way or another and George Floyd. And and let me say this, as you wind it down, on your podcast, I think that one of the things that is important is that, you know, when the verdict came down in the uh, Trayvon Martin case of George Zimmerman and those four sisters uh, came with, which became a hashtag of Black Lives Matter, and then Just a couple of years later, Eric Garner happened and and right behind it, Ferguson. A lot of people were galvanized, and a lot of people did different things in different ways. And as we know, a lot of us didn't agree with tactics. A lot of us didn't know each other. And that was reminiscent of even before my time with Dr. King and Stokely in there. But I have always had respect for people that have what I call sustained indignation. And I would clearly... I'd like to say that one of the people that stayed true to the cause was D. Ray McKesson. I respect your tenacity, your consistency, and uh, you do what you do, but you clearly wasn't in it for the moment. Uh, you built a thing. That's why I was honored to do your podcast. And one day I will seduce you into doing my television show.
1: <laughs> I would, I'd I'd, love to. Uh, I appreciate that. And before we go, one of the questions we ask everybody, Reverend, is... Uh, What's a piece of advice that you've gotten in your life uh, that has stuck
6: with you? When I was growing up, at 13 years old, I became youth director of SCLC Operation Breadbasket, the year Dr. King was killed. And I remember I went out and did some marching on somebody. I was 15. And they excoriated me in the press and uh, said I didn't know what I was doing. I was a kid. I was a teenager. And I remember I went back to Breadbasket headquarters. And one of the guys there said, uh, Ramel, you grew up a preacher, a boy preacher, right? I said, yeah, I grew up in Pentecostal church. I was a boy preacher. He said, you didn't play sports, you little fat kid. I said, yeah, okay. He said, uh, I played football. He said, activism, if you're going to stay in this, if you really got a passion for this, activism is like playing football. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you watch a football game, Half of the crowd is cheering. The other half of the stadium is jeering. The quarterback throws you the ball, and you run for the goal line. You don't get intoxicated with the cheers. You don't get depressed with the jeers. Your focus is to get the ball across the line. There are going to be out tacklers out there to try to stop you from getting to the line. You may have to run with some of them on your back. But the comfort you have, Al, is to know they wouldn't be trying to tackle you unless they thought you had the ball. And they wouldn't be cheering the jeering unless you had the ball. So when you hear the cheering or the jeering, and when you feel people trying to trip you up, say to yourself, I must have the ball. I've got to get across the goal line because otherwise, if you don't get across the goal line, it won't matter. You're going to lose the score now. I never forgot that, and I've tried to live by that. So I've learned to deal with the, all of the congratulatory people and all of the people that call me a bunch of names. I try to stay focused on, we got to get this ball across the line, like voting rights, like George Floyd. Because other than that, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we all dead. It won't matter if we didn't score.
1: Well, here we go. Uh, Reverend, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for helping people understand these topics. All right, thank
6: you. And I'm going to be in touch with you. I'm going to take you up on that TV thing. I want to... Because you run data down better than anybody I know, and you, you stay out there. I appreciate you.
1: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilber and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers: Jessica Cordova Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors: Kai Henderson, D. R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sunyangwei.
3: Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast. A village in India